Well, kids, uh, I want to begin uh, this morning by asking you all a little bit of a question. And I'm just, instead of raising hands and all that, kids, you are allowed to just shout out the answer after I ask the questions, okay? And I, I need your help, so, so, so help me out here, okay? Who can tell me, kids, what this is? Anybody know what this is? Soap. A bar of soap. Good. Good. They're easy questions this morning, so everybody can participate, okay? This is a bar of soap. Now, uh, what is a bar of soap used for? Cleaning, washing, good, good. Cleaning what? Your body. Your body, good. Uh, now, what parts of your body can you use to clean this soap with? Hands. Hands. Tummy. Tummy. Mouth. Mouth. If you've spoken bad words, you might get your mouth washed out with soap. It's happened to me before, kids. Okay, good. All good answers. Let me ask a, a couple of specific body parts to see if you can wash with this clean with this bar of soap. Can you clean your belly button with this bar of soap? Yeah. Yes. Can you clean your armpits with this bar of soap? Yeah. Can you clean behind your ears? Yeah. Yes. Can you clean in the very middle of your back? No. Kind of a trick question, isn't it? Depends on how long your arms are. Or if you have a, a scrubby or something, the middle of your back's really hard to reach. I've got long arms. I can kind of do it. Some of you probably can't. But in theory, in theory, that would work. You could clean the middle of your back. Uh, what about in between your toes? Yes. Okay, just a couple more. Can you use this bar of soap to clean your heart? No. No? Can you use this bar of soap to cleanse the thoughts of your mind? No. No. Can you use this bar of soap to scrub your conscience clean? No. Can you use it to clean the stain that sin has left on your soul? Last question. If you can't use this bar of soap to do those things, what can you use to clean those parts of your body? That's kind of what we're going to be talking about in church this morning as we continue in our uh, sermon series uh, entitled Prove It. And so kids, during the sermon today, um, on your activity sheet, I want you to listen uh, during the sermon. And, and uh, if you hear that answer of what can cleanse us on the insides of our bodies, I want you to write that on the top of your activity sheet. And then on the bottom half of your activity sheet, there's a space where you can draw some pictures uh, of ways... That this type of thing happens in the Bible, okay? And if you're willing to show me your pictures uh, after church, I would love to see them. Church, today we are uh, continuing and actually rounding the home stretch uh, of the season of Epiphany, uh, which, just as a reminder, is a season in the church year that's focused on how Jesus has been made known uh, throughout all of the world. At Christmas, we celebrated that, that uh, Jesus was born into this world. And in Epiphany, we celebrate that he has been revealed and made known throughout all of the world. Now, as Jesus was being made known, as he was being revealed in the world, uh, many incredible things were said about him. Both by the prophets who predicted his coming and the disciples who followed him after he had come. And Jesus even said some pretty amazing things about himself. The most amazing of these claims made by all of those individuals was that Jesus was the only Son of God. A claim making Him equal with God in heaven. And so throughout this series, we've been considering how can we know that those claims are true? 
There's a famous idiom uh, which acknowledges that talk is cheap, right? Meaning that, that anybody can say anything, but it's not necessarily worth very much if all it is is talk. Thanks, Matt. I'm not paying attention at all there. Handfuls of crazy people have claimed to be gods over the years, but, but just because they said it didn't mean that it was true. And so how do we know that Jesus was any different? If all it is is talk, how do we know that it's not cheap talk? Ross Perot, some of you may remember, uh, the eccentric billionaire businessman, politician, and philanthropist who ran for president a couple of times back in the 90s, uh, would often say, talk is cheap, words are plentiful, but deeds are precious. And his point was this, that what someone says carries very little value Compared to what someone does. The way that our words are proven to be valuable and true is when they are backed up by our actions and our deeds. So how can we know what Jesus, uh, that what was said about Jesus and what Jesus said about himself was actually true? He has to prove it through his deeds and through his actions. That's what this sermon series throughout the season, entitled Prove It, has all been about. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And let's consider together how Jesus proves it and why it matters to us. In this story, uh, Jesus was about to, uh, sorry, he was at a house where he was staying in a town called Capernaum. And after he had been there for a handful of days, word got out that Jesus was there. And as was often the case when word got out about where Jesus was, crowds began to gather. The crowd that gathered on this particular occasion uh, uh, to hear Jesus preach and teach was so loud, they were told that there was no more room in the house for anyone else to enter in. No one else could even literally fit through the door. Now, outside of the house, there was a group of of four men who had a paralytic with them that they were carrying on a bed. And they wanted to get their friend in front of Jesus in hopes that he might do a miraculous work on him and physically heal his body. But because the house was so crowded, they couldn't get him inside the house. So so eventually they took him up onto the roof. They dug a hole uh, through the ceiling and they lowered the paralytic down in front of Jesus. Now, there could be and there should be an entire other sermon uh, on the, the, the insistence and the persistence and the creativity of these men to get their friend in front of Jesus. And the implications that that, that part of this story has on our work of evangelism. We could learn a lot from their example. And I'd encourage you to spend some time uh, with this story and thinking about that point. But that's not the point of this sermon. The point of this sermon is what happened next. For what we see in verse 5 is that when the paralytic was lowered down in front of Jesus, and when Jesus saw the faith of those who brought him, Jesus said to the paralytic, Your son, your sins are forgiven. Now at first hearing... That offering of forgiveness to the paralytic may sound a bit like offering a a belt to someone with no pants on or or offering a book to someone who can't read, right? It's not that there's no value in the offering. It just doesn't seem to be the most pressing need at the moment. 
I can't imagine that the pronouncement of forgiveness is what these four friends went through all of the trouble of hauling their friend in front of Jesus for. As I'll explain later in the sermon, the offering of forgiveness actually was his most pressing need. And as we can see from the response of the scribes in the room, they realized what a huge deal this was also. For upon hearing Jesus proclaim the forgiveness of the paralytic's sins, the scribes, who as we discussed two weeks ago, were the the ones who were responsible for guarding and interpreting the Jewish faith, well, they began to lose it. In verse 6, we read that as they heard this, they began questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the answer to their last question, of course, is no one. No one can forgive sins but God alone. Now, to explain why that is the case, I want to jump out of this story for a second and jump into our Old Testament readings from this morning. The first of which was Psalm 51. And the context of Psalm 51 was when the prophet Nathan came to David, King David, regarding his affair with Bathsheba and his murdering of her husband Uriah. Those events are recorded in uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Now initially after committing these grievous acts, David had had no guilt. But when Nathan the prophet came to him and revealed to David his wrongdoing, through the use of a very clever illustration, followed by a very bold accusation, David was convicted of his wrongdoing and was deeply troubled by his offense. And Psalm 51 is a prayer that David wrote in response to those transgressions. Now, Psalm 51 is a a beautiful prayer of repentance. They call it the penitential of all penitential psalms. And I commend it to you as a resource for any time that you're struggling with a guilty conscience. But there's one line in this psalm that, that often confuses people, which has profound implications for what we're talking about this morning. In verse 3 of Psalm 51, David acknowledges his wrongdoing, vaguely alluding to his sexual assault and murder. But then in verse 4, he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Many of us read that line and, and we think to ourselves, how can David say that? He, he raped Bathsheba and he murdered Uriah, her husband. Clearly, he committed wrongdoing against them also. So how in the world can David say that it was against God and God alone that he had sinned? The reason that David can say that and be correct in doing so is because of the nature of sin. For you see, sin, by definition in the Bible, is not wrongdoing against another person. Instead, at its root, sin is a violation of God's divine law. Now, that may contain an aspect of wrongdoing against another person also. The last six of God's Ten Commandments all deal with our relationships with one another. And so when, whenever we are violating one of those divine laws, we are also undoubtedly harming one another also at the same time. And so in a sense, that is a sin against another person. But the only reason 
that it is a sin against another person is because it was first and foremost a violation of God's law. Do you see that? If God's law didn't exist, then these acts wouldn't have been sins. They certainly would have still been crimes against humanity, but they wouldn't have been sins because sins are a violation of God's divine law. And so by definition, sin is a vertical phenomenon, not a horizontal one. What makes sin sin is its Godwardness. So when David said against you and you only have I sinned, he didn't mean that he hadn't wronged Bathsheba by raping her. He didn't mean that he hadn't harmed Uriah by murdering him. He would have acknowledged the the harm done and the crimes committed. But those in and of themselves, apart from the law of God, are not sins against God. They are crimes against humanity. The sin that David committed was that he had despised God and rebelled against him by disregarding his laws not to murder and not to commit adultery and not to steal and not to covet another man's wife. Those were the sins that he committed. And with that understanding, we can see that it, it is actually against God and God alone that we sin. And the reason it's important for us to understand is because it means that if it is against God and God alone that we sin, then God and God alone is the one who can forgive us of our sins. We were reminded of that reality this morning from our reading from Jeremiah, where God, through his prophet, said to his people, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt remains before me. He says you you can scrub yourselves all that you want with all kinds of cleaning solution, but it will never remove the stain of your sin. Soap can clean the outside of the body, but it cannot clean your soul. And we see this reality in other ways as well. Our justice system can declare someone innocent of a crime. Or after having served a sentence for a crime, the justice system can declare that someone has paid their debt to society. And and so there are systems in our society to deal with issues of innocence and, and issues of guilt among ourselves. But those have no effect on the status or standing that one has before God. A person can easily be proven innocent in the courts of law but still be guilty before the eyes of God. Because those two really have nothing to do with one another. One is addressing the laws of man. The other is addressing the laws of God. And the reason that only God can forgive sins is because sins are ultimately only committed against Him. And so in the same way that that if a fight broke out one Sunday morning on our prayer team, right? And and if Miss Barbara assaulted Miss Kimberly, right, I could not forgive Miss Barbara for Miss Kimberly because she hadn't done anything to me. Right. It would be Miss Kimberly that would have to forgive Miss Barbara for the assault committed against her because she's the one who the offense was against. And so it is with our sin. God alone can forgive sin because sins are committed against God alone. Which brings us all the way back to our story this morning from Mark chapter 2 with Jesus and the paralytic. 
And because of all that, that, that we just said, when Jesus saw the paralytic and pronounced the forgiveness of his sins, there was no confusion about what was going on within the room. All of the parties that were present that day knew exactly what Jesus had just done. They knew that no one could forgive sins but God alone. And so they knew that by pronouncing the forgiveness of the paralytic sins, Jesus was professing to be God. And this, again, caused the scribes to lose it. They didn't believe him for a second. It's why they accused him of blaspheming, of claiming to be God when he wasn't God. Jesus claimed to be God. But the scribes weren't about to take his word for it. Talk is cheap. Words are plentiful, but deeds are precious, the scribes would have been thinking. Anybody can say that they are God, but can you prove it? Anybody can say that someone's sins are forgiving, but unless you can prove that you have the authority to actually forgive them, words are are kind of worthless. This is what the scribes were thinking. And Jesus knew their thoughts. And so he said in verse 8 and following, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? And Jesus' point in this question was this. He knew that the scribes thought it was easier to say that your sins are forgiven, because there's no way to prove whether that had happened or not. A person isn't physically different after their sins are forgiven. It's a claim that could not be verified. On the other hand, the scribes knew it would be far more difficult for Jesus to tell the paralytic to stand up and walk. Because then Jesus would have had to show that he actually had the power and the ability to make him walk, which they didn't believe he could do. And so Jesus, acknowledging that what he had said so far, what he had done so far, seemed easier because it can't be proven. But then he turns the table on them. And after saying to the scribes, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus turned to the paralytic and he said to him, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Just to prove that he had the ability and the authority to do the easier thing of pronouncing the forgiveness of sins, Jesus does the the harder thing, which is the physical healing, in order to prove it. In response to Jesus' words, the paralytic stood up, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. Jesus healed the man on the inside and the outside. In response, we are told that they were all amazed. Everyone in the room, believers and doubters alike, the faithful and the skeptic, they were all amazed at what they witnessed. And they glorified God, saying they had never seen anything like it. Because there's nothing like the forgiveness of Jesus. With the healing of the paralytic's body, Jesus proved that he had healed the paralytic's soul. Something that only God could do. Hence proving that all of these epiphany claims that that, that he really is God in the flesh come to save us. That they are really true. 
And the reason that all of this is so important, the reason that it really matters that Jesus really is God, and the reason that it really matters that he really does have the authority to forgive sins is because of the implication that if Jesus can forgive the sins of one, then he can forgive the sins of all. If Jesus has the authority to forgive anyone, then he has the authority to forgive everyone. And the reason that is so important is because as humans, this is our greatest need. It may not always feel like our greatest need. And some people may disagree that it's our greatest need because they don't believe in the existence of sin. But from almost the very beginning of scriptures until almost the very end of the scriptures, the Bible presents sin as man's greatest dilemma. The reason is because sin is unrighteousness. It is what is not right in the world. And it is what is not right within each of us. God created a very good creation. But from the moment that Adam and Eve rebelled against God and his ways, which is what sin is. From the moment that they did that, sin has been the root source of every problem that we encounter in this world. And so it really is our greatest dilemma. And it's also our fault. The scriptures teach us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. With Adam and Eve, we are all guilty. And that's bad news because the scriptures also teach us that the wages of sin is death. The cost of our rebellion is one that we cannot afford to pay. So we're all in desperate need. And the last kicker to this deeply discouraging reality is that there's nothing that we can do about it. Scriptures teach us we can't remove the stain of sin ourselves. So we're all helpless in this state. This is man's great dilemma. But the good news of the gospel is that in response to our great dilemma, God has sent his son into this world to save us from our sin. This is why Jesus came. In Matthew chapter 1, God told Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife because what was conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit and that she would bear a son and they were to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is why Jesus came. This is why God the Father sent his son. There's a famous quote. It's hard to find who actually said it. But it says that if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need would have been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. And so God has sent to us a Savior. Jesus came to this earth as God in the flesh to address our greatest need that we couldn't address for ourselves by offering us the forgiveness of our sins. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
This is why Jesus came. This is what Jesus does. It's what he did for the paralytic. It's what he did for the Apostle Paul. It's what he's done for many of you. It's what he's done for me. It's what he'll do for anyone who asks him to. And unlike the scribes in that house in Capernaum some 2,000 years ago, the reason that we can know all of this is true, the reason that we can know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins is not because of a body that was witnessed being healed, but because of a body that was witnessed being broken. This is how our forgiveness was won. Upon the cross, Jesus' body was broken and his life was poured out so that our bodies might be healed and our lives might be filled up. By dying on the cross, he paid the penalty of our sin, which we could never afford to pay for ourselves. And by rising again from the grave, he offers us new and eternal and forgiven life in him, if we will receive it. What nothing else on earth could accomplish, cleansing us from all of our sins, the blood of Jesus has done. And because Christ offered for all time one single sacrifice for sins, what that means is that if you have received the sacrifice made on your behalf, then anything you've ever done in the past and anything you'll ever do in the future is all covered by the blood of Christ. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. There is no more condemnation. There is no more stain of sin that lingers on your soul. There is no more distance between you and God that was caused by your rebellion against Him and your rejection of Him. Instead, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the waters of baptism, you are made new, washed clean, adopted as beloved sons and daughters, forgiven, made whole. You are a new creation. This can be hard for many people to believe and accept. Because we still know our shortcomings. We're still aware of our sins that we continue to commit. But it's true. And it's true because God is a just God. There is no double jeopardy with Him. He will never charge someone twice for the same crime. So if Jesus has paid for your sins, they cannot be held against you again. Even future sins. They've all been dealt with at the cross once and for all. You are fully forgiven. And when you begin to grasp that reality, when you really begin to grasp that forgiveness and to accept that forgiveness and to live in light of that forgiveness, it changes you. It gives you peace. It gives you joy. It gives you hope. It gives you freedom from everything that previously bound you. It makes you new. There really is nothing like the forgiveness of Jesus. Church, this is my hope for you. A greater understanding of. A greater experience of. A greater appreciation for the miracle of the forgiveness that you have been given by God through Christ. And I want you to have that for God's glory and for your good. 
in order to try in some small way to help you experience that forgiveness anew and afresh this morning, instead of saying amen at this point as I normally would, and instead of having us move into the profession of the the creeds and the prayers of the people, instead, I want to invite you this morning into a, a a time and a space, an extended time and space, where you can reflect upon the forgiveness that God offers you through Christ. I want you to dwell upon it and to sit present with Christ in the midst of it. Present in the forgiveness of God that is available to you. So during the next couple of minutes, we're going to have some music playing over the speakers. And I want to invite you in this time to just be still before God and to reflect on these things. This may be a time where if there is any ongoing and and undealt with sin in your life, it might be a time to begin to deal with Jesus about that. Maybe a time where you can contemplate, think deeply about the forgiveness that you have been given and consider its impact on your life. Or maybe a time where you simply sit with God and worship and praise and gratitude for what he has done for you. It's helpful during this time. You can listen to the words of the song and contemplate those. If it's not helpful, don't do it. The point of this time is simply to be aware of the presence of God and to dwell on His forgiveness made available to you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. At the end of this time, we will bend our knee together to confess our sin and have proclaimed over us once again the message of God's great forgiveness. So in the moments that follow, I invite you to be still and know that God is God.